Out of Oklahoma City, you're listening to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where movies are more than just 90 minutes in a bucket of popcorn. The Good Trash Genre Cast is a member of the Good Trash Media family. For more information, go to goodtrashmedia.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Honor Cast, where people gather around a table and we discuss the films that you'll never encounter in a film studies class. I'm very, very happy to be here in the studio again after a brief hiatus. There was a... Uh, Th- things, things, a bit of life, uh, all at once happened uh, here in the uh, lives of your good trash genre cast hosts. But now we are back in the saddle again, quite literally, as we look at 1964's "A Fistful of Dollars," starring yeah. the great Clint Eastwood, directed by the immaculate Sergio Leone. So we're gonna have a good time here talking about this film, but we've got some introductions to make, and we have a guest who is coming back, a founding father to the show. Sir, could you introduce yourself, please? My name is Arthur Gordon, and the crazy bell ringer was right. There's money to be made in these parts. <laughs> yes, indeed. We are so glad you're back, Arthur. We're so glad to have you on the show. It's so good to see you. I don't know how you drug me into this. Not when... I just showed up at the well. I saw there were some issues in town and thought I'd uh, hang around and see if I couldn't uh, play both sides against the other. (laughs) (laughs) That's very easy to do. It's very easy to play you and me against each other. It really is, yeah. Who's the Rojas and who's the Baxters? That's what I want to know. Dalton's the Rojas. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're so sweet. Oh, I'm sad. There's a tinge of law to you, Dustin. Is there a little bit? A little bit. That that makes sense. you're wearing black. Yeah, I am wearing black. Well, um, to my left, sir, can you introduce yourself? My name is Dalton Stewart, and uh, my mule don't like people laughing. He gets this crazy idea they're laughing at him. So quit laughing. (laughs) Stop it. Um, If you're wondering uh, who this guy that's been doing all the talking is uh, so far, who are you? My name is Dustin Sells, and uh, you need to get three coffins ready. My mistake. Four coffins. That's a good joke. It's a really good line. Uh, if, you're, if you're listening wondering, hey, I thought you guys were going to talk about Bullworth. Well, we were, but we decided to call an audible. Uh, as Dustin mentioned, life has been happening. Um, and uh, Dustin, what, what, do you want to go ahead and say what happened? Of course I can. Among the things that have happened, and there are several, but among them is my uh, paternal grandfather who uh, raised me. I went to live with him when I was three years old. I left his home when I graduated high school. He passed away um, after a long illness. And uh, one of the things that he and I did quite a bit of was watch Spaghetti Westerns as a Saturday afternoon matinee kind of thing at the house, sitting in his lap. And uh, Fistful of Dollars is one of those films. I did a piece on this um, uh, at uh, iProtein, my little column section there at GoodTrashMedia.com, where I talked about this when his illness was getting much worse about a year ago. And uh, so in honor of uh, Kenneth Duane Sells, uh, we are doing uh, A Fistful of Dollars. And so, uh, Grandpa, this is for you. It, It felt appropriate. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you guys gave me um, the, the the self-indulgence to do this. So. Well, I was just like, we, we when we finally decided we were going to get back to recording, I was like, well, let's not talk about Bullworth. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, hey, what do you think about this? And I'm glad you were receptive to it. I was afraid it might be a little too soon to talk about it, but I, I'm glad that uh, this idea made you feel good. Uh, yeah, it, it really did. I, I will confess I did get a bit weepy watching the movie, you know. Yeah. Um, but that's that's a thing that happens, and that's okay. And so oh, buddy, is it? You're preaching to the choir on that one. <laughs> Hi there. I cried at Guardians 2. I'm all. a baby. Don't we all? 
Ah, oh, god damn it! But uh, if, you're, if you're turning in, tuning into the Good Trash Honor Cast for the very first time, dear listener, we want to warn you what's going on here and uh, how we go about this. This is not a review show; it is an analysis show. And uh, of course, we're going way back in the catalog, back into the early part of the 1960s, uh, just a year after the death of John F. Kennedy, uh, to sort of give you some cultural context uh, for this moment in world history. And as such, uh, we do not avoid spoilers, but we do avoid them at the first part of the show. So this is the quick rundown of what's about to happen to your ears. We are going to give a synopsis from the voice of, oh, I, you know what? We didn't discuss this. You know, we do have... We do have the voice of the cinema in the house. Today. Yeah, well, I just assumed he was going to do it for uh, us. Uh, of, uh, you don't want to do it? No, oh, no, he's already can, ready for he's it. He's all set. I was trying to hand him off the IMDb uh, synopsis that we read from uh, to set up the show, but he's already ready to go. So, he, he knew he knew it was happening. He knew here. it was happening. He, <laughs> what are you, you going to do? You're not going to drive a Ford Pinto when you got a Mustang in the driveway. That's uh, that's absolutely. You don't want you don't want me. <laughs> I'm, I'm the Pinto in this obviously analogy. Yes. Yeah. So we will have a synopsis from the voice of the cinema, not the Dalton Theater, uh, this week, and uh, following that, we'll have our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews of the film, uh, which will be. Sp- Spoiler-free for the most part. Then we'll get into our gameplay, which might involve some mild spoilers of this film and some other films that we would discuss. But we try to avoid the worst um, offenders in terms of spoilerage at that point. But then once we get down to business, y'all, all spoiler bets are off, and uh, you have been warned um, regarding all of that stuff. So that is uh, your warning, dear listeners. so stay tuned for all of that. So without any further ado, back in the studio once again. Um, the professor himself, Mr. Dr. Reverend Bishop. He's not Duan, any of these things. Grandmaster Arthur Gordon. Let's hear uh, that synopsis. A wandering gunfighter plays two rival families against each other in a town torn apart by greed, pride, and revenge. Oh, I've missed that so much. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. So yeah, that's what the movie's about. Yeah. Um, if you're wondering to yourself, gee, that sounds a lot like the Akira Kurosawa film Ujimbo. Well. It turns out it is. Yeah. It's the same movie, and uh, Leon got in quite a bit of trouble for doing that. Quite famously, um, Akira Kurosawa sent a letter to Leon uh, afterward and uh, was uh, telling him that he, really mu- he very much liked his movie and that it was partially because it was his movie. And Leone did not get it at all. He showed all of his friends, look, look, Akira Kurosawa likes my movie. And they're like, no, you dolt. He's telling you, you plagiarized him. Which is so funny. (laughs) It's so funny. It's excellent stuff. So let's talk about whether or not we liked uh, Fistful of Dollars. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I'm going to go to you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What say you? Uh, Thumbs up, thumbs down on a Fistful of Dollars? Oh, it's quite a good film. Um, and I think in, that's in no small part due to three things. Uh, Sergio Leone's eye for action, Enrico Marconi's magnificent score, and Clint Eastwood's uh, endless bucket of charisma. Um, Clint's so good in this movie. Um, Leone famously said about him uh, that Clint has two faces, with a hat and without, uh, which is what <laughs> makes him uh, perfect for this kind of role. Now, I, I, I'll argue that Clint has a little bit more range than that, uh, but this early in his career, that's really what he was leaning on was his scowl. And it's quite a scowl. Uh, I mean, he, he's got just a great face. Um, and and it's it shot so well by the, the production team in this film. It, it, he just, his eyes uh, are so blue and his uh, skin is so, so tanned. I mean, he, he looks like he's been riding around. He's, 
he's quite old uh, in this already. You know, he's already in his late 30s, which gives him uh, a very specific kind of weathered appearance. He looks like he's been riding across the desert. He certainly does not have that baby-faced rawhide look. No. I, he, ha- he has the look of somebody who's been wandering, and I think that really helps sell this idea that he's just this this lone gunman who you believe can do anything without actually knowing a damn thing about him. Uh, and I really, now I can't speak uh, to you, Jim, because I've actually never gotten around to it. Uh, but I think what makes the, the man with no name such a compelling character, and I don't know if you Jimbo's like this, uh, is just th- this lack of knowledge about who he is or what he's about um, and, and this quietness that he, he gives you everything without giving you anything, which I think is really interesting. Uh, absolutely. The, uh, the character Sanjuro um, that is in the film Yojimbo. What's it, Yojimbo mean? Uh, Yojimbo means words. Oh, okay. Okay, I don't remember now. So it's not the name of the lead. Good it's, to know. It, it is not. Yeah, the sequel Sanjuro is the name of the lead. Oh, okay. But, um, yeah, he does have a sort of no backstory and uh, nothing that's going on. Very with quiet, it. I assume. Mm-hmm. Very. And Tajiro okay. Mafuni is, you know, just oh, as Machiavellian. Badass. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah, the Japanese Clint Eastwood. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and I don't feel weird saying that. I feel like it's an apt comparison. Yeah, I think I, absolutely. I think it's an apt comparison. It's so. a little bit more range as an actor. Uh, by the way, there is a Tashiro Mifune documentary on Netflix currently, dear listeners. Oh, so that sounds good. if you want to get further down the rabbit hole with that, um, I recommend it to you all. We got off the track. Uh, I do like this movie a lot. Um, the score is beautiful, as I mentioned already. There's not really a whole lot else I can say about it other than when you go back and try to watch, uh, especially the really any film from the mid 60s to mid 70s, there are some just they're paced much more differently. The thing that struck me about uh, Fistful of Dollars watching, because I haven't seen it in years, uh, was how it's structured very similarly to a modern film. It's not structured like a movie from the mid-60s. It moves at a really good clip. There's not a lot of fat on this movie. Um, I think it it moves at a really, especially the last 30 minutes. I mean, it just moves. Uh, And I really was surprised by that. I was expecting it because for a few dollars more, the sequel I tried to watch not that long ago, and I remember thinking, God, this is a slog. Um, and uh, Fistful of Dollars just never felt like that to me. It felt like it moved at a really good pace. Uh, and again, I think that just comes down to what a wonderful team that was assembled for this film. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Daltonsford. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you? Do you like A Fistful of Dollars? Uh, yeah, I won't spend a lot of time here. Obviously, you know, this is a very important movie for a number of reasons. I like the score, as Dalton mentioned, it's fantastic. Uh, the opening titles are beautiful. They're uh, so good. They are. Uh, I like the uh, cinematography, as Dalton mentioned. It's, it's shot beautifully. It looks beautiful, uh, especially for a film with such a small budget, you know, roughly $200,000, uh, which equates to about $1.5 today, which is nothing. That's get-out numbers, and it's probably about as successful as get-out was today. Uh, and that says a lot to a movie uh, for it to be able to generate that much revenue so I think that says a lot about a film to be able to generate that much revenue, kickstart a whole genre, and be that influential on that little amount of money. Uh, I like the story. I like this idea of this agent of chaos who just rolls into town, uh, causes all sorts of anarchy, upsets the natural order. I love that about this movie. Uh, my only complaint, and this goes back to something Dalton mentioned, to me it does feel slow. Really? It could okay. just be me. Uh, my attention span, you know, there's a lot that goes into watching a movie as far as setting, your surroundings, you know, time of day, how tired you are, all that stuff. And so for me, it was a little slow. But I also read, and it's something interesting, is that uh, Sergio Leone uh, would often direct to the score, which was pre-composed. Interesting. Uh, and I believe that Morricone had said in an interview that, uh, you know, he would often 
let the music play out uh, instead of just saying cut, he would let it play out and keep going. And so that would often lead to kind of a slower pace uh, that you would see in some of his films. Interesting. Interesting enough. I also learned that's what James Gunn does. That's how he, uh, he has no the film fooling. composed and then he'll play it on set when they're shooting. Uh, but he knows when to say cut and Leon likes to let it play because he likes the music so much. And that was what Morcone said in his interview. That's uh, really interesting. Which it is. It is very interesting. I think, and that kind of alters the way you can look at the movie and what that may uh, say about the uh, impact of the, you know, the music on the performances, on the the direction itself, and how the the movie plays. Um, but you know, other than that, uh, which is really more on me, I think, than this movie. I mean, obviously, it's influential. It's you know held in high regard. Kickstarted a whole genre, reinvented a genre. Uh, and its influence is, you know, far spread. And so for that, I will, you know, I'll give it a pass. I like it. It's good. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Uh, of course, I like this movie a lot. I, I, I guess I'm the picker of the film. Um, yeah. So, you know, there there's definitely reasons why I like it. And it was, uh, again, very, very uh, numerous magic Saturday afternoons I spent watching this, sitting in my granddad's lap, uh, watching this particular film. And, and I think part of the reason why it works so well is because it is a film that is entirely of its moment in a fresh kind of way without being gimmicky as its moment. It's not screaming at you 1960s like a movie might scream at you 1990s, but it is absolutely taking um, all that's going on in the zeitgeist of that moment and then applying all of those things into an aesthetic and a style. I mean, the best example I can think of, which is kind of a weird one, is 1993's early 90s film The Crow starring Brandon Lee, which is jumping on all that's going on in the emerging goth movement, the emerging uh, what's going on in action cinema, and what's going on, uh, again, in sort of grunge music and, and, and this sort of relationship to New Wave and all this other stuff that's going on. What this film does is it uses that rotoscope technology in those early credits. It uses that jangly Fender guitar in that in that score, which is very, very much a Beach Boys kind of sound, but is blending that with the high brass that Marcone is is using uh, for the, the, the score, that we're using a guy like Clint Eastwood, who is a scruffy and bearded, which is unlike most of your typical Western heroes, speaking into that uh, up-and-coming 60s, uh, Zeke Geist is about to happen with the hippie movement, and uh, you know, there's the use of that iconic green poncho, uh, the way he's able to c- construct a figure with a silhouette that has all of the sort of political and uh, sort of... Uh, a countercultural power of the images of Che Guerrera that we're going to see in that moment as well. And so it's able to tap into all of those things that's going on. It's revitalizing an older genre, the Western that they're familiar with, but it's also very much doing it as an action film. They're, they're using the best of the technology at the time. This film shot in technoscope, which is a two frame process that lends itself very much to uh, close ups and to long shots. And so the film really very much plays with those close ups and those long shots and does its storytelling in a very, very visual kind of way. They, 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 they use the language barrier to their advantage, and they take lines of dialogue away from their actors and actresses. And by doing that, they're able to tell the story purely visually that makes it much more interesting to watch. And so it, it's not just because of the nostalgia goggles, although I have to say they are quite thick as I look upon this film. It is because it is sort of brilliant in its moment, um, and that's why I love a fistful of dollars dustin to your to your point about language i can't believe we haven't talked about this uh something worth mentioning for our listeners if they don't know uh sergio leone's uh spaghetti western well all spaghetti westerns uh typically and this one is no exception uh, everybody's speaking italian on set and then they dub with english actors after the fact clint eastwood's the only person on set speaking english 
uh, everyone he's acting with is not speaking English. And the dub is really good. I mean, there are definitely moments where you catch the dub, but overall it's quite good. Yeah, as a small child, it took me a long time to realize what was quite wrong with it. I just thought it was old, and therefore that's, you know, there's just something broken there. And uh, so, but yeah, it is it is quite on uh, pace. And, and the, the sort of process of dubbing is very interesting because translation doesn't seek out to necessarily um, match word for word the dialogue in the Italian script as much as it tries to ma- match mouth flaps. Um, per line. Yeah. And so it, it's a different sort of art of uh, translation, transmission that we're dealing with there. And I think they do it very, very well there in Italy um, for those reasons. So, yeah, guys, there you go. We we like this movie. It's 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 a bit of fun, and it's definitely uh, a film that I think we're all going to suggest is worth your time. But I think at this point we need to talk about how you can be part of this conversation with us all um, via social media. So, um, Dalton, can you say some words about social media and what's happening there? Well, I can and I will, Dustin. Uh, you can find the good trash media network on twitter at good underscore trash you can find us on facebook facebook.com forward slash gtm um come find us uh, talk to us that's where we do the things that's where we tell you what's happening that's where we we uh, pose fun polls and questions and silly such things and retweet some news uh yeah come do that uh you can also rate and review uh, and subscribe to this show on itunes stitch radio and all the other podcasty bullshit Thank you very much for that. Well, I think it's enough of this foolishness at this point. I think it's now time to play the game. Time to play the game. Time to play the game! (laughs) That's right, dear listeners. And this week's game are our favorite family films. In so much as we mean films you want to watch with family. That's right, favorite family films brought to you by A Fistful of Dollars, A Fistful of Dollars. Nothing says watching films with family more than Westons. I'm in my right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> those are the movies we watched with our grandparents. Yes. I mean, it's so it felt, and again, with the reason uh, for doing this film, it felt appropriate to talk about the movies uh, that you know make us think about our family, that we like watching with our family. So that's kind of where we're going to go. It's going to be a little bit loose. Uh, it doesn't have to be something you've actually watched with a relative. Uh, it can be something that makes you think about a relative. So that, that's where we're going. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm going to go to you first, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Uh, what are your, some of your picks? Uh, I want to say maybe some classics. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, do some uh, uh, Bogart and Bergman or uh, Hepburn and Tracy. Uh, I watched uh, Desk Set with my uh, mom one time because she's a big fan of Hepburn and uh, Tracy and their pairings. And so those kind of movies often remind me of my mom and and uh, what she kind of influenced me with in film. And, and going off that, uh, anything sci-fi, she's a big sci-fi thing, uh, nerd. And so uh, I think a lot of uh, – she loves Blade Runner. It's one of her favorite movies. Your mom's so freaking cool. And so I think a lot about Blade Runner or Alien. Uh, she's got a copy of Prometheus on her shelf. And so anytime I watch those type of sci-fi – you know, Alien Covenant's about to come out. So I think about her uh, when I think about watching that movie and, you know, maybe seeing that. Uh, with her, and obviously Hannibal himself, uh, the Silence of the Lambs. Uh, it sounds like a morbid, morbid thing, but uh, your mom just likes good content. She man. does. I remember watching The Godfather in early age, so she introduced me to the good stuff. Uh, I recently put an article up on GoodTrashMedia.com about highlighting Mother's Day Mother's films. Day films. Yeah, and so that. a lot of these are repeats there. Uh, going to the other side, though, I think about my dad. I think about The Fugitive. Uh, obviously, that was one of his favorite movies. Uh, anytime I watch anything uh, with Arnie, classic Arnie, kind of T two and before, you know. Uh, I think of my dad because he's a big Arnie fan, big action fan. So Chuck Norris, you know, so if you want to just kick back and watch some 
B movie action films with Chuck or Seagal. Uh, you know, those are some fun family movies to watch with dad. Uh, and so that's, those are some of the things I throw out there. Some of the classics, some of just some schlocky B movie fun stuff. Uh, anything you can just kind of sit back and laugh or enjoy or, you know, have a fun conversation about. Excellent. I appreciate that very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what are some of your selections? Well, uh, I know I talk a lot on the show, uh, in the history of doing this show. I've talked a lot about my, my birth father and, you know, him getting me into film. But I don't, something I don't know that I've talked enough about is my, my adopted father, uh, who he and I equally to this day bond over movies. Uh, you know, I take him to the movies every, every year for his birthday. That's just a thing we do together. So to kind of set the stage, I wanted to. Uh, tell the story of the time I tried to make my mom and adopted dad watch uh, No Country for Old Men. Uh, about 30 <laughs> minutes in, to just kind of explain my, my parents to you, about 30 minutes in, my mom just gets up and goes, nope, I can't do this. This is too dark. I'm done. And then me and my dad just watched it by ourselves. And at the end of the movie, he goes, man, that was really good. So that's uh, that's my parents. And then we we talked about the my, – my dad picked up on the, the, the lack of score in the film. My dad's a good film watcher. He knows what's going on. Um, my mom, uh, loves film, uh, just in a very different way. She likes a very different kind of movie. Uh, but my mom's no slouch. Uh, one of the movies I always think about my mom when I watch is Die Hard. One of my mom's favorite movies is Die Hard. She thinks it is a perfect action movie because she is correct. She's a smart lady. She knows, uh, what good content is. Uh, my dad, uh, one of the films that, uh, I think we've talked about this on the show before, but one of the films that I always think about him when I watch is The Grey. Um, I took him to see it for his birthday, and uh, it will always be locked in. And again, it's, I know it's a much more recent film, uh, but it's a film that we really responded to, both of us. We talked about it a lot. Um, uh, if you don't remember, this is Joe Carnahan's film, The Gray, starring Liam Neeson, where him and a bunch of uh, guys that work out in oil fields in Alaska crash in the middle of nowhere and are uh, accosted by wolves for the runtime. It's Liam Neeson fights wolves. Uh, but really, it's Liam Neeson fights an uh, existential crisis. Um, this is a movie about Liam Neeson dealing with uh, his wife who's died from cancer. My mother was in chemo when we went and saw this movie together. So uh, obviously, we both really responded to it. Uh, and it's about yelling at God, which is uh, what me and my dad talk about most, <laughs> is yelling at God um, in, in the various ways that people do that. So that's a movie that I, I, I will always really connect uh, to my father. Uh because it just means so much to us. Uh, my love of Star Wars, you know, it comes from both of my dads. Uh, it was always on uh, with my dad. So anytime we were watching Star Wars, it was on in the background. Or anytime we were, you know, over there, it would just be on. But my adopted father was the first one to be like, we're going to watch these in a structured order. Um, and that really explains my two dads. <laughs> one's just content all the time without any explanation. The other one's like, we're going to structure this content and help you understand it. Um, so that, that was, uh, that's something I, I can't not watch Star Wars and not think about both of them, especially the original trilogy being, uh, especially the second two films, uh, well really Return of the Jedi is so much about a father and son relationship. Uh, it's hard for me to not think about them and think about, uh, who each of them were, were and are, uh, it's just very, uh, tied to my memories of both of them. Uh, finally, uh, I want to give, uh, two more, uh, one's a TV show though. Um, and it's nothing I've ever watched with my mother because I never am going to get my mom to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, but the episode The Body, um, which, uh, spoiler alert, is the episode where Buffy's mom dies. And it's the least fantastical episode of the show. It's just an episode of television about uh, grieving over the loss of a loved one. Um, but, uh, again, this comes back to when my mom was uh, battling cancer while I was uh, in college. Um, I hadn't rewatched Buffy in a couple of years, and I watched that episode, and it just obliterated me. Um, 
and really made me reckon with a fear about the possibility of losing my mom that I hadn't really dealt with. You know, I had kind of been putting it off and just focusing on school and not really thinking about it and not really being there for her. Uh, and that I, I still, I weep every time. And again, I think everybody weeps. Everybody that's a fan of Buffy weeps when they watch that episode because it's so well done. But um, I'm, I have a very intense personal connection to it. Uh, and every time I watch it, I need to text my mom and tell her I love her. Um, finally, uh, a film that I know... I have talked about ad nauseum, but when I was 10 years old, my, my birth father took me to see Training Day in the theater, and Arthur is so happy because in his run as producer of the People's History of Film, he's heard me tell the story probably, God. How thir- many episodes did we do? We did 52 episodes. So 52 times. Uh, well, I was, <laughs> was going to say 35, I was going to say 53. <laughs> There's twice in that one episode that uh, you... The, 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 yeah, the, that one time. Uh, so Arthur is not surprised at this. He knows the story, but uh, I can't not think. It, you know, the movies that my dad inappropriately took me to uh, have had a strong impact on what I like about movies. Yeah. I love cop movies. Uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know why other than that. I mean, I can't find any reason for my intense drawl to uh, crime cinema other than that film and my intense drawl to science fiction and martial arts being The Matrix. The other film that I always go to is the movie that he took me to see, which is slightly less age-inappropriate, but still a whole lot for a nine-year-old to take in, especially the complex uh, morality of walking into a government building and shooting people. That's a thing that happens in The Matrix. Oh, boy, try explaining that to a nine-year-old. Um, so, yeah, that's a, th- those are the films that I think about when I think about my family. Excellent. I appreciate that very much, Mr. Dollenstorff. For my family, it is more star studies um, when it comes to uh, what kind of films that we watch. With my grandfather, as you already have realized, it's Clint Eastwood movies to a lesser extent John Wayne, which is interesting because uh, Clint Eastwood is more of my father's generation than it is of his own. But for my grandpa, it was always Clint Eastwood movies that we were watching. Even the newer things, you know, we'd watch Unforgiven, we would watch uh, In the Line of Fire, we would, you know, old Clint Eastwood, uh, even Bridges of Madison County. Uh, these are the kind of things me and my grandfather would watch together with my dad it's always been sylvester stallone films it's always been the rocky franchise it's always been the rambo franchise uh with him that we've watched with my grandmother this is a bit surprising perhaps it's always been robin williams films that's awesome and so you know and this this comes to home video watching of say mrs doubtfire and uh, films of that like but also two theatrical experiences where my grandfather would not go and me and my grandmother by ourselves went and saw Awakenings when it first came out, uh, which also features um, Bobby De Niro. And also uh, a very vivid memory in 1996, 15-year-old Dustin going uh, to a theater that is nearly no one is there because it's a small town, Carnegie, Oklahoma. And we watched The Birdcage and cackled like hens the entire film. And uh, so when I think of my grandmother, it's always been Robin Williams films. Um, As a father, um, I also have a little bit of this going right now with my boys and it's mostly bruce lee and jackie chan movies uh that we watch together and that's kind of be and also to a lesser extent but growing is donnie yen and so that's become something of a thing with us it, the kung fu is strong in my family apparently and so those are the selections that we have there and of course there's a standard just family fair of all the great franchises that people do but um for me it's always been uh with a certain person it's always been this kind of stars uh sort of auteurism uh with a particular film 
And so that's been the thing uh, with us. So there you go, dear listener. Um, if you have any other thoughts about that, what you like to watch with your family, if you would like to give some in memoriam or just celebration, it is Mother's Day as we record here today. Um, so if you've got something you want to celebrate, mom or dad, grandparent, uh, a sibling, uh, a particular family member, and, and just a certain set of films that you watch that are meaningful, we'd love to hear about that via all those magical means of social media. But I think it's enough of this at this point. I I think now it's time to get down to business. That's right, dear listener, and that business is, as always, analysis. I'm going first to the guest today, um, the guest, the legacy guest, the founding father guest, the great and illustrious um, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Um, I hear you have some analysis you'd like to share with us. Yeah, I do. Let's Bow at it. my feet. <laughs> we should, because Dustin and I have been uh, just, you know, uh, talking to each other. Yeah, I don't know what's happening around as, well, as soon as you left, we stopped working hard, uh, <laughs> and then we both would just say, hey, these are three things I want to talk about, and would you know, not have formed opinions when we started talking, unlike some people who are good at this. You do you, boo. You do you. I do. Well, that's so, all we can ask for. So Arthur's going to Dalton get... is never at a loss for words, so I'm sure there was no <laughs> shortage of content <laughs> while it was gone. I miss you so much. I want to discuss the man with no name as portrayed here by Mr. Clint Eastwood. I want to talk about his larger meaning within the narrative of the film and his functions therein. The man with no name is a carryover from Yojimbo, which will be important to this reading. It is also a trope from the works of Dashiell Hammett. Uh, and we see this kind of uh, birth from noir that is carried over into Yojimbo in the Easter world, which is adopted by uh, the Italian cinema. And then, you know, we get a few uh, strangers nowadays. Drive, obviously, being the most notable, I think, of this uh, kind of trope. Uh, stripping the character of his name is important, though, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first, it strips him of his identity almost immediately and makes him a blank slate by which audiences can picture themselves on. Uh, and second, similar to his identity, it removes any remaining character attributes that he may have had. Uh, the man with no name, while the main focal point of the film, doesn't have much of a character. Uh, he states motivations for his actions, obviously the, you know, let's profit off of this war between the two feuds. Um, but he appears mostly as a plot convention within the larger narrative of the folks of San Miguel. And I want to read The Man With No Name, not as a protagonist. In this reading, the stranger is going to be looked at as something of a force of nature. And I'll switch back and forth between calling him The Stranger and The Man With No Name. Uh, I didn't opt for the Joe reference. I, I mean, yeah, this, this is the only film where he's given a name. And it honestly, you, you can very easily miss that that is yeah. his name. I think in, uh, I know in... Um, uh, Good, Bad, and the Ugly, Eli Wallach prim primarily calls him uh, Blondie. Yeah. Uh, I forget what they call him in uh, Fistful of Dollars, or for a few dollars more. But yeah, he's he has a shifting name. Um, so yeah. I, yeah. I believe it's Todd. Todd? In, in, Todd? In, it's Todd. It's just Todd. Oh, yeah. yeah. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. That's worse than Bob. Ugh. You're a Todd. It's <laughs> <laughs> just going to be 50 more minutes of him doing that sound effect. Yep. Pretty much. Uh, in looking at it this way, um, I want to uh, I want to go back to the eastern roots of the narrative, and I want to uh, you know I believe him to be the personification of the kind of karmic retribution that is due the people of uh, San Miguel, um, and San Miguel must also be viewed as a character, and in many ways, specifically, I think as a damsel in distress uh, there to be saved. 
Uh, San Miguel has been taken captive by our two rival families who have fought back and forth. Uh, their greed, bloodlust, and evil hearts slowly taking over San Miguel and tying her down. And is it the peak of this feud that the stranger first appears, uh, coming into town much as a tumbleweed and leaving in much the same fashion? He first appears as an onlooker drinking from the well before he is then attacked by the citizens of the town. Uh, his mysterious arrival, poor motives, and primarily silent interactions all point uh, to a character there to fulfill an otherworldly other mission. Uh, he is there to see that the families get what is coming to them. And in many instances, these two families could stop what they are doing and move on past their differences. And in doing so, the same tragedies would not befall them. Uh, and the city would then be free to prosper. But as it plays out, the city must rebuild. And that is the Eastern influence, I believe, uh, this kind of karmic retribution coming forth. And I think a lot of that may be carried over from Yojimbo in, in and of itself. Um, but now I want to look at the Catholic influence. Uh, Catholicism is obviously, you know, very vital, important to Italian culture, Spanish culture, and the Mexican culture. And I think it is important to shaping and understanding more about the, uh, the stranger's ethereal presence. Uh, again, this goes back to San Miguel, which translates to St. Michael, or is a reference to Michael the Archangel, the Archangel. Uh, and I think in many ways, building off of the idea of the man with no name as a physical manifestation of otherworldly retribution, uh, we must look at the stranger as the personification of St. Michael himself. Uh, Michael the Archangel has four vital roles within the Catholic Church. First, he is the leader of the army of God. Uh, second, he is the chaperone at the hour of death. Third, he weighs the soul of a person and judges them based on their deeds. And finally, he is the guardian angel of God's people and the church. Uh, these are all roles fulfilled in many ways by the man with no name. As the leader of the army of God, uh, Michael would be adept at combat. Uh, the man with no name is well-versed in fighting. He's fast on the draw, maybe supernaturally fast. Uh, we see this throughout, and even after being tortured, he is still able to fight back and overcome the numbers. Uh, it is also important to note uh, that at the end of the film, uh, the stranger does go into combat with a breastplate to protect him. And symbolically, this is a breastplate of righteousness. Uh, righteousness is to do what is right in God's eyes. In Proverbs, uh, it is stated that righteousness delivers from death. Uh, in the same sequence, the stranger keeps telling uh, Ramon to aim for the heart. Uh, the heart is vitally important symbolically in regards to sin and righteousness. Uh, the stranger has gone into war with this breastplate of righteousness. Uh, the stranger, as the keeper of the gate, uh, this whole reading is based off of the idea that the man with no name uh, is there to judge these two families for their sins. It is the idea that he is present solely to see their merit and whether they are worthy of repentance or death. And I think this is the most textual of my claims. Uh, similarly, this reading insists that the stranger is the guardian angel of those who do good within the city, uh, the bell ringer, Marisol, Pirapero, uh, the coffin maker, and uh, Silvanito, the owner of the saloon slash casino. Uh, but finally, Michael is the chaperone at the time of death, and I think this most works with the introduction of Pirapero as the casket maker. Uh, the imagery of the casket is so prevalent throughout the film, and we even have the escape sequence of the stranger in the casket. Uh, the casket could be considered in its way as a chariot to the afterlife. And while I think this is one of the weaker angles of my reading, I think that this is there, that there is a strong visual connection uh, that works in my favor. And one last note is that we first meet the man with no name at the city well. Again, the well and water are both rife with spiritual and Christian significance. Uh, water is life giver. The story of the woman at the well. These are both vital narratives that can be imprinted upon the narrative. Uh, even the name attributed to him by the people of the town, Joe, carries much theological significance. But San Miguel is a patron of soldiers, policemen, but also mariners. And what better place for San Miguel to appear in physical form than at the heart of the city, 
the well where the water that gives life to the people of San Miguel is constructed. Excellent. Outstanding, Mr. Arthur Gordon. And I want to speak to some of what's going on there because um, the Catholicism is pretty heavy in the film. And there, there's some, you know, sort of basic kind of Christian tropes. We do have uh, something of an Easter sort of formatting of the story. He comes riding in, um, not on a donkey, but on a mule, you know, which is definitely a smaller horse. And it, it is kind of hilarious to see this sort of, you know, big man that Clint Eastwood is on this very, very tiny horse. A very woolly horse. It's a very, very winter coat that that particular horse is wearing at that time. And of course, he rides out on the uh, same horse. So it's got these shades of Palm Sunday and approaching, uh, both going in and going out. And of course, we have the death and resurrection of the character as he is left for dead in a graveyard and comes back, you know, to bring about that retribution. And all of this going on with the story, because as Akira Kurosawa is doing with the film Yojimbo, he is playing off of Western tropes, that it is a Eastern Western when we look at Yojimbo. And I want to talk a little bit about globalization and the Western as it is uh, being put, a, put forward here in this film because um, there, there's, a, there's a different sort of theories about globalization. I'm going to really um, rely heavily on a guy called George Ritzer and his two books, The Globalization of Nothing and Globalization of Nothing Too, which are uh, sort of key texts in globalization theory. And he makes up his own words, um, the global and the global, um, which are pretty stupid terms. Um, Dr. Ritzer, I'm sorry, but they're dumb words, and I don't like that I have to use them, so I want someone <laughs> to do something better uh, with all of that. But the the local is the sort of, you know, this is definitely very much of its place and of this uh, particular localization, and that it is um, something that we try to find access to. And so you find this in the use of, say, Asian markets or of, uh, you know, Mexican markets, where you want to find the products that, that, that really belong somewhere else, but they do have a, a sort of global appeal, but they're very much local in their flavor. The global, on the other hand, is, is a way in which they've managed to really hit maximum sort of uh, uh, consumer density uh, with their approach. And the Western does this kind of thing. It's not like Coca-Cola, which is the same pretty much wherever you go. I don't care what the Mexican market tells you. Um, it's all pretty much the same fizzy sugar water that you're getting, although you might get a different sugar that's here or there. But there's not a drastically different Coca-Cola flavor profile that you're getting. What you get with the Western, though, is something like the export of a product like beer, uh, where there's, um, you know, you have your Japanese beer, you have your Shintago, which is very Japanese and some of its flavoring is very distinct from, say, the, 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 the global, excuse me, the just the globalized, you know, standard Budweiser. I'm really looking at Blue Velvet a lot with this analysis, you know, of Heineken versus uh, what Pabst Blue Ribbon and versus Budweiser uh, with this kind of stuff. And then you've got um, something that's you know, uh, you know, very much of his part, like a Trappist ale or something like that. That's uh, from the Trappist monks, and so, but it's all basically just beer at the same time. And so, what you have with the Western is you have the American Western, which carries a lot of the American ethos and a lot of the American uh, sort of style. And that is again something of a Budweiser. It is very sort of bland, and it doesn't have a whole lot of particularity to its flavor. But then you uh, Japanize it, you know, when you move it over to Japan, and you have something with you characteristics. Was Yojimbo, which is going to be wrestling with issues of the influence of technology and the loss of empire, which is what Yojimbo fundamentally sort of wrestles with. And then when you move the same sort of story over to Italy, it becomes very much a Catholic kind of story, which is all really absent, um, despite the fact of its setting in parts of northern Mexico that you might find in American Western films. The, the Catholicism is really pretty thin there, but when we find this sort of Italian version of it, 
um, this uh, the, these spaghetti westerns begin to carry a, a very uniquely Italian flavor with what's going on, even though it's all packaged within the same sort of uh, basic western tropes that from beer to beer to beer to beer, you only get beer, but you might get some uniqueness from this locale to that locale. And so that is, uh, some, and then again, this is all uh, Richard's words. He uses beer as well, sort of one of his controlling illustrations in Globalization of Nothing too. And so um, I think it's sort of an apt comparison as we're looking at the spaghetti flavor that we're getting here. You know, the, the marinara of uh, the, the marinara drenched celluloid of the spaghetti oh, boy. western. Oh, boy. <laughs> but um, it's, it's doing those things in a very, what Ritzer would call a very sort of global way. Because there is a sort of mass appeal to the western, but they're just doing it in this particular sort of niche branding uh, with it. And so that's, I think, part of the interesting uh, marketing value of what we experience in a film like uh, A Fistful of Dollars. I think part of what is really interesting about the film, um, in an equivalent American film, uh, and there is one, it's called Last Man Standing, starring Bruce Willis from about 93, it's in a prohibition town. Um, so the, the the story of Yojimbo has been made three times. Um, in a much more American telling of this story, it's more about the badassery and prowess uh, of the, the stranger drifting in a town. And what I find so interesting, and again, I can't uh, speak to how things play out in uh, the uh, Akira Kurosawa film, uh, but in this film, it's interesting to me that the man with no name, while, as Arthur pointed out, is quite uh, capable of uh, maiming and killing people, uh, is really using uh, the I mean, one of the entire gangs gets wiped out by the other gang. Uh, he he doesn't involve himself in combat if he doesn't have to. Uh, he's more playing a, a long-form chess game, trying to get them to kill each other, uh, and only steps in when he absolutely has to. Uh, what I, I think is interesting is this idea, Arthur and I picking up on the same idea. I actually saw him as the exact opposite of uh, you know, an archangel. Uh, I saw him as a Luciferian figure uh, because of uh, the way in which he gets people to make deals that are not going to benefit them in the long run, uh, which I find really interesting. Uh, but again, Arthur and I both king in on th- this idea that he is a retributive uh, force of nature. It's, it's funny, uh, Clint will revisit this theme twice more uh, in his filmography in two films he directed. In the 1970s, he's going to make a film called High Plains Drifter. Uh, and in the 1980s, he's going to make a film called Pale Rider. Um, and these much more lean into the idea of personal retribution as opposed to societal retribution. Uh, I, I think this film is looking at, you know, what happens when a, a lawless land that has been set up in the idea of, you know, freedom, you know, letting people live smallly and simply and do whatever they want and has been perverted into what you think of when you think about lawlessness into a, a town of guns and booze and uh, bad morals. Um, and it becomes a, a much more karmic thing. In the films High Plains Drifter and Pale Rider, they become much more about um, personal grievances, personal vengeances, personal slights uh, against evil, um, per- personal slights uh, coming from evil, and those very specific people being punished for very specific things. Uh, so it becomes less, uh, really, I-, I would say, less Eastern and less Catholic, and, and much more... Uh, the traditional sense of um, Americanized uh, Protestantism and uh, justice, which I think is really interesting in these two later films that Clint's going to make because it is all about, uh, again, if you haven't seen either of these films, you should, 
I am totally going to spoil both of them. In both films, the main character that Clint Eastwood's playing is a ghost, um, for all intents and purposes. Uh, in High Plains Drifter, it's a little bit more plainly stated that he's a ghost. In Pale Rider, it's a little bit more ambiguous. Uh, but in both films, basically, this dude rolls into a town and kills the bad guys because he was killed by the bad guys in those towns. Uh, they're both awesome. Uh, Pale Rider involves him beating up a gang with an axe handle. Uh, it's super dope. It's amazing. Yeah, it's real cool. Uh, but both films uh, are much different, right? In, in this film, uh, Sam, the town of San Miguel is being punished for uh, an overall badness. In these other films, these people are being punished for uh, not uh, for, for a specific slight against this ghost. Uh, so it's very interesting how Clint revisits this. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to kind of touch on that I found interesting. Uh, you know, when you watch a Western from the mid-60s, you're going to run into a lot of things that are uh, not good, uh, that are a little squishy, uh, make us feel gross with our modern sensibilities, particularly in terms of gender and race, uh, especially films set in the, on the Mexican border. Uh, I think what's really interesting about this film, when it gets transposed to Italy, um, it's not racist anymore. Um, yes, you still have a, uh, ostensibly white character killing a bunch of brown people, uh, but it never feels like it's passing judgment on anyone. Uh, it never feels like anyone's being made into a caricature. Um, so you still have the same kinds of problems optically, uh, that you do with a lot of Westerns, but you don't have thematically the same problems, which I find very interesting. Uh, you also don't, now there, don't get me wrong, there is definitely some damsel in distress type stuff. There is definitely some commodification of women's bodies going on. Yeah, and she's got like no lines. No, but you have a female character who seems to be in charge of things. The Mrs. Baxter really kind of seems to be in charge of that operation because she is the one that the stranger goes to to propose, hey, I'm going to be a double agent for you guys. She's the one that says, you need to listen to this guy. Um, so, which I find very interesting. When, when I was watching the movie, I was like, oh, I don't remember this, and this is really cool that this is happening. Um, so that, that was just a final thing that I wanted to touch on because, you know, when you talk about older films, especially when you talk about older genre films, there's some gross stuff uh, that you need to reckon with. And I feel like, uh, thankfully, Leon gives us less of that gross stuff to reckon with, which I appreciate. Excellent, excellent. I'll tell you what, guys. That was tasty. That was some, that was some good analysis. That was some good times. So uh, there you go, dear listener. That is our analysis. We'd like to hear more from you via those magical means of social media already mentioned. But we now come to the point in the show where we must render a verdict regarding a fistful of dollars. Um, the question is, uh, do we put this on the shelf or does it go in the trash? And then what else or instead, based on that selection? I'm going to go to you first, Dalton. What do you say? A shelf or trash? Else or instead? I mean, yeah, this is definitely a shelfable film. Uh, we've talked a lot about the historical influence that this film has and how important that is. Uh, and then we've just talked about how much fun it is. Um, so it's definitely a film worth uh, canonizing and putting on your shelf uh, for sure. What should you pair with it? Well, I've already told you a bunch of movies that you might want to check out. Last Man Standing, uh, I haven't seen in quite a few years, but I remember it being a lot of fun, if not particularly good. Uh, Bruce Willis is running around in a in a in a fun vest with his sleeve shirt shirt sleeves rolled up, and he's got two guns on on his shoulder holsters. It's dope as hell. Um, yeah, hey, uh, put pro Prohibition era fashion into this movie, and that's literally the movie. Um, but it's got more gunfights, and uh, it's adopting a lot of Hong Kong uh, action cinema type iconography. Um, so yeah, it's just Bruce Willis running around with two guns, like sliding down shit and shooting at people. So it's super cool, um, if not great. Uh, High Plains Drifter and Pale Rider are uh, I two of my favorite Clint Eastwood films. I mean, I think Clint Eastwood's four best films are uh, his most notable westerns, Outlaw Josie Wales, Pale Rider, um, 
High Plains Drifter and uh, Unforgiven. I think all four of those films are fantastic, and all four of them are commenting on his career uh, in these spaghetti westerns. Uh, but the two I mentioned specifically, just because of this this karmic ghost. Um, again, they're not great on their own. Honestly, uh, Pale Rider's really good. High Plains Drifter is just okay. Um, but they all are very good. They're elevated by Clint Eastwood's career in a lot of ways, which I find interesting. Um, finally, I thought about what are some fun films, uh, American genres directed by non-Americans, uh, films that kind of touch on what America's about uh, from an outside perspective. The first one that I thought about uh, was last year's Hell or High Water, uh, directed by, I'm going to say David McKenzie, and I'm feel pretty good about that. Uh, the director of Startup, an uh, English filmmaker who directed uh, that film from the screenplay by Taylor Sheridan uh, with the uh, fantastic cast of Jeff Bridges, Chris Pine, and, um, oh my God, uh, that beautiful Ben Foster. Boy. Ben Foster. Thank you, Arthur. Um, it's a film that I love. Uh, if you listen to content on uh, Good Trash Media, you've heard me talk about this film quite a bit. I like it a lot, and I think when you get that outside perspective, um, you really get a, a lot of nuance to what America thinks about itself when you have a non-American tackling uh, specifically our genres, but also our tropes. Uh, and I think that's really interesting. The other one is less interesting on that thematic and genre, uh, that thematic and trope level, and just more interesting on a uh, for, um, formalistic standpoint. Uh, and that is Leon, the Professional, um, by um, Luc Besson, uh, film set in New York about a New York hitman, uh, starring Jean Renault. Um, yeah, it's it's an Italian mobster film. It's uh, you know it's a one man army movie, uh, but it's very French, formalistically speaking. Again, it's not really engaging with American themes and tropes in the same way Hell or High Water is, but it's definitely tackling the the American action hero, uh, which is really influenced by the French action hero uh, from uh, Le Samurai. Uh, so obviously, there's some cross pollination there, uh, with Leon being uh, very influenced by that by films that were influenced by that film, if that makes sense. I know that's a very Ouroboroughian type thing I just described, but uh, I think it checks out. I think it does too. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton, sir. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say? Shelf or trash and elsewhere instead? Shelf, obviously. I don't think we need to debate that. Um, I think for this film, there are two very specific films you need to watch, uh, especially in relation to the genre of Western and the times of the 1960s and the mid to late 60s. And that's going to be Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, as well as... Nice. Yeah. As well as The Wild Bunch uh, for a couple different reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, we've really entered the new Hollywood. Uh, by 1969, we're really kind of rolling. Uh, we've been adopted this new hyper-violence, I think, which comes over a lot from the Italian uh, new wave and the French new wave. And we're kind of seeing this more hyper-violent uh, cinema kind of uh, oozing into American film. And, uh, and they're two different films because you have, uh, you know, Butch and Sundance. Uh, which is really a reflection of the times of the youth culture and uh, kind of the wall that they're fighting against to change things, but it's not really happening for them. Uh, and you parallel that with Peckinpah and the Wild Bunch, and Peckinpah is really the last cowboy. He's the last of his kind, and he's very, you know, this this idea of this kind of toxic masculinity that he oozes and that he's rampant in his films. And I think there are two contrasting ideas uh, within the same genre at the same time, both 1969. And I think that uh, there's a lot of reflection of what's happening with uh, Sergio Leone and an answer to that Spaghetti Western, uh, especially with the visual style. You know, the stuff that Arthur Penn did with uh, Bonnie and Clyde is coming over as well. But the way that Butch is shot, uh, the way that it uh, kind of works and the, the way it works within the Western genre is kind of different from what we'd seen before. 
And so I think both of those films are very important in dialogue with uh, Fistful of Dollars and the Dollars Trilogy, probably on the whole as well, I'd imagine, without seeing the other two. Um, but then I want to also reference, uh, I think that High Noon would be another good Western to kind of go back if you want to stay in that that wheelhouse and look at that. That's another uh, socially important, another response to the, the times and the the blacklist and the communist movement and what was going on in Hollywood at that time. So I think that's important to look at as well. Uh, and then finally, I'm going to mention Tombstone uh, because Tombstone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's Tombstone. Uh, and I'll always be your Huckleberry good trash. And I also <laughs> want to say Drive. I mentioned it earlier. Uh, we've got the, the, uh, the carryover of the man with no name. Kind of rolls into town. We don't know anything about this guy. He's, you know, the ultimate killer. And he does what he has to do. And then he gets out of town. And I think that is a great pairing. And if you want to understand the the character trope, the man with the name, the stranger, uh, the driver, I think you have to go back to, you know, uh, obviously Sergio Leone stuff. But you also look at Joey's Jimbo. And then you go back to the the works of uh, Hammett and, and go from there. Excellent. I appreciate all of that very, very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Of course, I'm also going to say shelf. It's already on my shelf. I've got a double Blu-ray disc of the first two films in the Dollars Trilogy. And the first thing I would say is just watch the rest of the Dollars Trilogy. Go go watch if, uh, for a few dollars more. Go watch The Good, Bad, and The Ugly. Um, you're going to have to buckle in because they're longer movies and they are a bit more um, slowly paced. But I think they're very, very good. Um, if you're thinking just you want to get more of the feel of what it is to be looking at Italian cinema, uh, I'm going to look forward into the uh, 20 teens and i want to suggest barbarian sound studio oh yeah such a good yeah. movie and one i know you like quite a bit yeah i love that movie yeah. a, a lot and it is sort of that adr process and just what's going on with that and i think it does sort of give you some of that taste of what we're dealing with and also there's some good rotoscope used uh for the trailer for the film that they're making uh, during the course of it um to conclude i would say this and it's already been mentioned but i want to mention it again i think clint eastwood's unforgiven as sort of the apotheosis of where the western ends up taking us uh towards the 1990s is a, a great other partner film uh with this film so so I recommend it also very, very highly. I like these recommends. I like what we're saying so far. This has been good times and good stuff, dear um, co-hosts. We put down a damn semester's worth of content for you to watch. The show did. You'll yeah, syllab- there's your uh, Western syllabus. Yeah, yeah we already did. We got to add stagecoach, and I think you're done. Actually, we just make it a class on. Clint and the searchers. Oh, the searchers is good. Yeah. We need, oh man, we need to do Western Month. Anyway, that's a whole other thing that's going to happen at some oh, point. Damn perhaps. it, The Searchers is such a good movie. Yeah, it oh. is. But there you go, dear listener. Now, um, we already drew from the ball hopper last time. Bullworth is still coming up, and so it's coming the up Warren, next. The Warren Beatty classic. So uh, we're, we're very excited to be taking a look Speaking at that. Of Bonnie and Clyde. <laughs> right? Uh, so take a look at that. Take a look at any of these Clint Eastwood movies and other movies that we've recommended to you so far, because that's what this is all about. It's all about that conversation. So much more than just 90 minutes in a bucket of popcorn it's about how we get to spend this time together and have this greater conversation you keep watching we'll keep talking and we'll see you all next time hey call somebody you love and ask them to go to the movies with you do it thank you for listening to the good trash genre cast a product of good trash media our intro is night call by kavinsky and love fox Today's outro is the soundtrack to A Few Dollars More by Ennio Marconi. Production by Dustin Sells. For more Good Trash content, visit GoodTrashMedia.com.
Go, go, go. 